Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Stephen Gutowski. He is the founder of The Reload. This is a great publication that y'all should consider subscribing to. Basically, Stephen has created this dedicated reporting just to discuss the nuances of big gun stories, as well as shed light on underreported aspects of gun ownership in America. We're going to talk today about the culture of gun ownership, the politics of gun ownership, the NRA, gun control, actions on the Hill, and everything in between. Let's dive in. Steven, just super big picture, why are guns such a salient issue in the culture wars? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, it's really uh, it's really like a cultural touch point, right? Um, it's something that m- uh, millions, really hundreds of millions of Americans value dearly um, as part of their uh, not just political identity, but their uh, identity as an American. And then on the other side, you have a lot of people who've been affected, obviously, by uh, you know gun crime. Um, and view guns very negatively for oftentimes legitimate reasons. Um, and those two opposing points of view um, are at loggerheads constantly in the United States. And um, it leaves very little room for um, any, any sorts of compromise, I suppose, uh, as you've seen really for the last 30 years uh, in the United States. Um, but it's really a fascinating topic. And I think for me, one of the big things about guns that, that just doesn't get a lot of coverage uh, is really gun culture. You get a lot of coverage of gun crime uh, in major media, but you don't get a lot of coverage of the people who own guns and why they own them and what they use them for. Uh, and that's changing fairly rapidly uh, over the last 10 years and especially over the last year. And I, that's what I really. Um, founded the the reload to look into is is that dynamic and how how things are different now. Yeah, so how has that changed over the last 10 years? Yeah, well effectively uh I think a lot of people have this picture of gun owners as, you know, rural white men who like to go hunting. Uh and while certainly that is a, a gun owning demographic, I don't think it's the predominant one anymore. Um you've seen gun ownership become uh more diversified. You've seen gun owners become more uh, suburban than than rural. You've seen them become uh, younger. Uh, you've seen more women become gun owners. You've seen more minorities become gun owners. Um, in fact, the fastest growing uh, section of of America to buy guns for the first time last year were African Americans. Um, and you've seen a lot these uh, demographics uh, represented in new activists as well, uh, breaking onto the scene, um, in, in the political world. And it's really changing, I think, uh, gun politics, uh, in ways that people don't grasp yet. And, and that we aren't fully going to realize for probably another decade or two. What accounts for this explosion in gunnership over the past couple of years? I mean, you know, I would think, you know, second amendment enthusiasts would say, look, this is really, sort of an explosion of freedom. This is uh, people who have realized that, that, uh, that they want to either use it for hobbies or they want to protect their families, what have you. There's a pretty negative interpretation too, which is more Americans are scared of more other Americans and felt like they need to get guns. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly a mix of both, but I would say that, uh, over the last year, especially with the, all the chaos we've seen from the pandemic and, um, the police uh, brutality and the protests and the rioting that most uh, gun buying was probably driven by concerns over that, uh, very real concerns, right? Uh, you had meat shortages here in the United States. You had uh, prisoner releases that were very controversial. You had uh, a lot of people died, uh, obviously, uh, over the last year, uh, which really destabilized society. And I think that's something that perhaps peeled back the veneer of like 
civilization a little bit for for a lot of people. Uh, you know, you start to, you see what happened over the last year with with lockdowns that I don't think anyone uh, ever expected could even uh, happen in America, right? Uh, even if even if they supported them, um, and you you look at the when you, the grocery stores started running out of eggs and and meat and toilet paper and everything. And people, I think, imagined what could come if things got worse. Um, and they wanted to protect themselves uh, and their loved ones, which is a natural impulse uh, in those situations. And then at the same time, for a lot of minorities in America, uh, you, you saw the issue of um, police brutality in full view uh, again, right, uh, with George Floyd's killing. And that brought out a lot of justified concerns uh, among those communities that they need to, you know, protect, protect themselves, essentially. And um, the same thing occurred with Asian Americans uh, in America who bore the brunt of racist uh, blame for the pandemic um, and were subject to a much higher rate of hate crimes than normal. And a lot of them decided that they wanted to start uh, taking, I guess, self-protection into their own hands by buying a gun. And you sort of had a perfect storm of, of motivation to purchase a gun uh, across a diverse swath of Americans. And at the same time, you had the age-old reason for gun sales spikes, which is politics, uh, came into play uh, with the 2020 election because you had um, Joe Biden run on an extremely uh, aggressive gun control platform uh, well, probably the most aggressive in American history, to be honest. Uh, he, you know, he didn't just want to ban the sale of guns like the AR-15, uh, which is the most popular rifle in the country, but he wanted to, in fact, uh, require all the current owners to register them under uh, pain of felony, a federal felony. So, you know, he, and he won. So uh, you had a lot of people buy for that reason as well, for political reasons, which is usually what's driven big spikes in gun sales in the past. So you had all of these reasons coming together all at once. So uh, I, I'm one of these first time gun owners, uh, bought a gun a year and a half ago or so. And the big challenge uh, I have faced is uh, I have this really nice gun and I can't get ammo for it. And I have some <laughs> just in case anybody's thinking of robbing my house. I do have some. <laughs> But I can't get much. I mean, it's really hard to get nine millimeter ammo. It's hard to get other kinds of ammo. Do you expect you had a piece about this at the reload.com uh, this past week talking about just how how uh, sh short we are of of ammo broadly? Do you expect that to catch up? And what's the what's the cause? Is it just that so many more people ha have guns? Well, it's a combination of two things. One, the main cause is that just so many more people have guns. Uh, I talked to uh, the head of, of one of the major uh, ammo makers uh, in the country about this, uh, Jason Hornady, and he described it um, uh, as though, you know, what would happen if the NFL suddenly had eight, eight or nine million more people who wanted to go to football games? What would they do, right? They'd have to build new stadiums, uh, and that would take years. Uh, and that's exactly what you've seen in the ammo industry. Uh, you have all these new gun owners like yourself who not only want to have a gun, but they want to be able to shoot it, right? Uh, they want to be able to practice with it. And they want to, most people who own guns want to be able to have a, a small stockpile, maybe not 50,000 rounds, but you might want to have 500 to 1,000 rounds on hand uh, just in case you have a shortage like, like exactly what we're experiencing now. So you, you have all these new people coming in to buy it, uh, ammo. Uh, and then you also have... Uh, people who've turned into essentially ammo hoarders or stockpilers. Uh, you have a lot more of those now from what uh, uh, people in the industry told me in that piece. Uh, people don't want to buy just one box anymore. They want to buy a whole case now. And that's, that's choking off supply as well. So you're seeing increased demand in the form of new, new owners and increased demand in the form of current owners becoming stockpilers, basically hoarders. And, um, and you can sort of understand why someone would do that. It's you've seen this same uh, impulse across all kinds of products uh, over the last year, right? With toilet paper, obviously, uh, 
computer parts have, have gone under a huge shortage because uh, the gas shortage, right? That that was largely driven by panic buying, um, even more so than the, the pipeline shutting down for a week. Um, and then you also have the issue of uh, supply uh, of, of basic materials to make ammunition is becoming more scarce, like you've seen with uh, uh, construction materials um, or, or computer parts. They've all had uh, issues with shortages based on the raw materials being more expensive and more difficult to get. And even shipping, things like shipping um, or, or cardboard, uh, there's a cardboard shortage. And that, that all goes into effect uh, the ammo supply. And unfortunately, uh, it, it probably will get better eventually. But the timetable we're talking about is like two years before you're going to see normal supply of ammo at the gun store where you can just walk in and walk out with as much nine millimeter or two, two, three, or, you know, 45 that you want at normal prices. So at some point, gun ownership culturally became associated with this idea of freedom. And I think for a lot of people, they take that for granted. Like, well, of course it does. It's sort of, it's self-explanatory. Um, just to be clear, I grew up in uh, Fort Bend County, Texas, before other people lived there. It's a very rural part of uh, East Texas. Lived on the end of a mile-long dirt road. We had a gun in my house to pick off armadillos out of my mom's azalea bushes. So I grew up very much with um, with a gun in the house. In fact, it's how I found out that Santa Claus didn't exist because my presents were kept with the gun. Uh, and so I wasn't allowed into that place. But then, of course, I went and that's when I found the presents. So I say all this, like, culturally, I get it. But when the mask wars happened, all of a sudden I had this moment where I stepped back and said, maybe it's not so obvious that it was always going to be guns in the way that, like, now it's masks that represent freedom culturally for a lot of people. And I'm wondering if there's a point in history, um, you know, we think of the Wild West as this period that lasted for like 100 years when in fact it's like sort of a 10-year period, uh, you know, in the 1880s. Between the 1880s and let's call it the 1980s, when did guns attain this cultural guns equal freedom status that now we kind of take for granted? Well, I mean, I would honestly, I would think that that basic idea goes back to uh, in America, at least, to the founding era, right? Because uh, the whole concept of the Second Amendment really is about um, armed populace being able to uh, throw off the tyrannical governments, you know, as the founders uh, did with with uh, Great Britain. Um, <clears throat> and so, like, for in America, I think it has very deep roots in terms of what guns represent to Americans, other parts of the country, I mean, uh, other parts of the world, uh, I, you, you would have a very different connotation for what a gun represents. Um, uh, in fact, that's been an issue with, uh, uh, Asian Americans, um, uh, from what Chris Chang, uh, who is a, a prominent, uh, Asian American gun rights activist, uh, told me in, in a piece that I did on a new Asian American, uh, gun owners group, uh, you know, in, in certain parts of Asia, guns are not at all associated with freedom or, uh, uh, the rights of the people They're they're associated with oppression from, you know, government forces from police or military. Um, and so I think we have a, a unique tradition here in the United States, um, that views, uh, gun ownership as, or, or, you know, an armed populace as a philosophical bulwark against, tyranny. Um, and that's not necessarily something that other cultures around the world view guns as, uh, they don't view that in the same way. And then, uh, I mean, I, I think your question maybe is, uh, more, more about like how did guns become a cultural touch point in conservative America, right? Uh, more so than like just generally, because, because, um, certainly I think over the last several decades, guns have come to mean, gun ownership has come to mean something very specific to a certain subset of, you know, conservative Republicans. Um, and you can see this in how the NRA has sort of uh, evolved over the years and their messaging to appeal to us, their, what they view as their like core audience. 
perhaps at the expense of other constituencies, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, I think politically in America since you know the 1980s, uh, 90s, um, that it has become a much more partisan uh, issue where uh, certain uh, subset of Republican Party views gun ownership as like a cultural signaler that they are, you know, conservative, uh, that it's a, it's a sort of identity uh, signifier, right? And, and that, I think, has only gotten stronger with the party realignments that we've seen of the last 30 years and the way that the two parties have polarized on guns. Um, you've seen a move from... I would I would even say that it's even more present on the Democratic side. You've really seen them move from since the 1990s when Al Gore, part of his loss was blamed on his position on you know being too far out on gun control. Then the Democrats sort of made it a back burner issue for several decades, um, and then now in recent years since the Obama administration, they've really begun to. Uh, push back into um, a more uh, restrictive mindset on on gun control. They they want more gun laws now, and they're more vocal about it. They've made it a bigger issue than it used to be for the party. And as that's happened, um, as there are fewer Democrats who are pro-gun and there are fewer Republicans who are pro-gun control, uh, it's become a wedge, you know, obviously a wedge issue, and it's become something that is used to uh, signal that you have a certain set of beliefs more than just that you, uh, you know, like to hunt or you want to defend your family or yourself. Um, Now, you know, like I said, over the last decade or couple of years here, especially, I think general gun ownership is becoming more diverse. And so you have a lot of people who own guns that don't fit that, that sort of uh, conservative Republican framework. Um, but, but certainly there is, a uh, an identity politics aspect to gun ownership in the, in the Republican party for sure. It feels to me like the, uh, the power, the altitude of the NRA has been declining since the Heller decision that, in, uh, uh, found an individual right to bear arms at the Supreme court, uh, and then was incorporated in McDonald. There's some sort of internecine culture or conservative legal culture stuff of why I think that hurt the NRA. Um, But I think there's been a more precipitous decline even more recently than that. A, do you agree that the NRA is no longer sort of the power broker that it was? And B, what effect has that had on gun culture in the United States? Those are are really good questions, right? Um, Well, I mean, for one, when, uh, you know, political interest groups are always in kind of a funny position, right? Because if they accomplish their goals, they become less relevant and less powerful um, in a certain way. Um, <clears throat> although, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily agree that uh, Heller was the be-all end-all for, for like, you know, the gun rights litigation movement, because it really was sort of the beginning, I would say. It's like the baseline was established there with Heller, the very ba- the very lowest level thing that the second amendment could possibly mean uh, if it means anything at all is that you can keep commonly owned firearms like handguns in your own home for self-defense that's basically what heller established right and um fun side note for non-advisory opinion listeners i did a whole segment on our episode about how i camped out in front of the Supreme Court through the night to hear the Heller arguments. It was raining. It was very cold. And I finally, I made it in. I got a seat. I had set up a whole government outside uh, in the line sitters um, to then uh, finally got inside. And it was so warm and cozy. And I was so tired. And I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <Classic. laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. No, that's fantastic. Um, Yeah, but so, you know, Heller really just established a sort of baseline. And there's still a lot, even 10 years later, uh, or what is it? It's almost 13 years now, I think. um, That there's still a lot that the gun rights movement wants to accomplish in the courts. And the Supreme Court has really been completely absent from that 
in that uh, you know during that time period, and that, you know, they're getting back into it literally right now with a new case on gun carry because they haven't addressed at all what the right to bear arms, the bear arms part of the Second Amendment means uh, whatsoever. So uh, you know, I, I think there's still a long way to go, and and really the NRA wasn't the one who drove Heller anyway. Um, they the NRA is the biggest group by far. They have five million dues-paying members, which is a really important point. The people pay them money to be an NRA member, which is very different from you know every town or mom's demand action. When they say they have five million members; they just mean like newsletter signups, uh, which is very different. That that's where the NRA's power comes from is the how many members they have. But um, you know, I I, th- I don't think that they have have lost their uh, cachet necessarily, at least not until very recently where they've started to see uh, declines over their uh, corruption scandal uh, that they're currently going through. Uh, I think that's had a bigger effect um, on on, uh, the NRA's power, both in on the Hill in DC and, you know, with the membership even. Um, Although I would, I will say that like my view on like the NRA long-term issues is that, uh, the biggest problem they have besides the immediate threat of being dissolved by the New York attorney general, which is obviously pretty, pretty big threat. Um, and they, they just tried to, they, it's big enough that they tried to file bankruptcy to avoid it and then failed to do that. So not a great sign for what's going to happen in that case. But, um, there, if you ignore that part, uh, I guess, which is hard to do certainly, but, uh, the bigger issue is that they first announced having 5 million members in 2013. That's eight years ago. And in, in the bankruptcy court, Wayne LaPierre said they had 4.89 million dues paying members, which means they haven't grown their membership at all. And in fact, it's slightly regressed um, in eight years. And that's, that's not good, <laughs> as you could imagine. Uh, they're still very big and powerful, much bigger than anyone else out there. And they do legitimately do a lot of things. You could not replace the NRA overnight if they went away. You couldn't do it. Uh, you could eventually probably replicate what they do in among multiple different groups, but it, it would be a while before you could catch up to everything that the NRA actually does because they do real significant work. I mean, they're still passing, you know, uh, gun carry laws as we speak. Texas just became permitless carry in large part because of the NRA's efforts. So um, not not exclusively them. And I think there's often a, you know, they overplay how important how important their power is, like a lot of groups do. And so does the left. And then you have people on the right who criticize them and wildly underplay their importance. But either way, uh, I think they've gotten less powerful very recently because of the corruption scandal. But are still formidable and will be going forward, but they have long-term uh, threats for sure. So let's let's dwell on that for a minute. Um, this was one of the the reasons I was excited to get you on. You've been covering this this corruption scandal, um, these bankruptcy filings, um, and you know this stuff I think as well as anybody. So we thought we would take this opportunity to get something of an explainer from you. Let's, let's say that you are a passive news consumer and you've, you're not that interested in the, the day-to-day of the NRA and you didn't follow this whole episode in great detail. How would you tell people what's just happened? We see the NRA in our headlines. We see corruption. We see bankruptcy possibilities. We know that New York State is going after them for what, whatever reason. What's just happened with the NRA? Yeah. So the basic is the basic roundup is that the NRA, uh, NRA leadership, like Wayne, including Wayne LaPierre, uh, is accused of essentially diverting, uh, NRA members money to pay for their own personal expenses over decades to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. That's the accusation, uh, from New York attorney general, Letitia James, who's a Democrat and also a, a very public, uh, opponent of the NRA, called them a a terrorist organization uh, uh, when she was running for AG. But that's the accusation, right? And they're in New York State Court because that's where the NRA was founded back uh, just after the Civil War. Um, And that's where their charter is. So the New York AG has purview over their status as a a nonprofit. And um, they 
filed, actually, the NRA actually filed bankruptcy. And they didn't do it because they're out of money. They have more assets than they have debts, right? So they're not insolvent uh, by any means at this point. But they were worried about uh, Letitia James' uh, goal of dissolving them. That's what she wants. She wants this very radical thing, frankly, because this is not really something that's ever happened to a group like the NRA ever in the United States. And you can see, obviously, the political problems of a a politician shutting down one of her political opponents, even if even if there is corruption involved at, at, at the organization, um, that's a very that's a very big reach. Um, the Teamsters, for instance, were not shut down, even though they were literally run by the mob, um, right? We didn't shut them down. We they were reformed and placed under oversight from the federal government, but they weren't shut down. Anyway, that's the danger that they're trying to avoid by filing bankruptcy. Now, this was a it was called a hail mary move by a lot of bankruptcy experts. Um, and the goal was to try and basically litigate the case in uh, federal court, or at least get federal bankruptcy court to prevent Latricia James from being able to dissolve them. They wanted the bankruptcy court to protect their assets and then potentially to move those assets from the New York entity to a new Texas entity. Um, but uh, they spent $22 million, I believe over $22 million on this effort, and it failed. Uh, it got dismissed by the judge. Uh, They didn't even make it into actual proceedings of the case. It got dismissed before they got that far. So uh, they're back to square one with that. uh, And now they have to go back to New York court to try and fight there um, against James uh, in the case that they clearly (laughs) didn't have high high hopes for because they literally filed bankruptcy to avoid it. So that's where it's at right now. you know, that there also were some dissident board members who tried to wrestle control away from Wayne LaPierre during the the bankruptcy uh, trial by getting a court appointed, uh, basically uh, auditor and then uh, creating a members committee to take over. But that that just failed as well. They want they they wanted to appeal the decision, but they couldn't raise enough money to do it. It's a very small percentage of the number of people on the board. The NRA has a 76 member board in case you weren't aware, which is, which is huge, um, compared to almost every other, you know, nonprofit or corporation out there. But, but yeah, that, so they're in serious trouble. Some of, some of these, um, problems kind of burst into public. I think, you know, the kind of thing that if, if you worked in Washington and you, you were familiar with the NRA generally, it's long been understood that there's some, shall we say, shady spending going on, questionable spending going on. Um, and then you had these very public accusations from Oliver North back in 2019, where he made direct accusations of tremendous amounts of, of misspending. And, and then in this bankruptcy, in these bankruptcy proceedings, they had to admit to a lot of stuff that's like sort of mind blowing, right? Yes, that's true. There's, there's several more layers to this, including like what Oliver North's motivations were for why why he did that. Um, because he he worked for uh, one of the NRA's former top uh, outside contractors, Ackerman McQueen, which is the one that's the group where basically the Lapierre and others are accused of essentially running NRA money through this group to pay for their own personal expenses, um, so that you know, more or less so they don't show up on the NRA uh, books, basically. Um, and, and instead, they get billed as Ackerman uh, payments, which which aren't, uh, <laughs> they're not itemized. It's been a big issue. Uh, but the, they had a falling out in 2019, which led to the, this whole uh, internal fight between Oliver North, who was president at the time, and Wayne LaPierre, who was the CEO. But um yeah, they have admitted quite a lot of uh, corrupt things in court, essentially. I mean, Wayne, for instance, Wayne LaPierre himself, uh, now he had already, this had already been filed on their 990, um, but essentially he admitted to diverting $300,000 worth of NRA money for uh, private flights that aren't reimbursable under the NRA's you know, internal policies. Um, you know, they, they called it, uh, excess benefits is what they, 
they the term that they used for it. Um, and he wasn't punished in any way for that. He just had to pay back the money. Um, and uh, additionally, his longtime uh, assistant, Millie Hallow, uh, who had previously been convic- uh, pled guilty to a felony of uh, for taking um, I believe, tens of thousands of dollars from a, a DC art commission that she worked for in, in the, I believe the 1980s. Um, she was, she pled guilty to that, then later was hired by the NRA. And then the NRA admitted it, on their 990 and in court that she had again, diverted tens of thousands of dollars from the NRA to pay for her son's wedding and other personal expenses. Uh, she was also not punished in any disciplined in any way for this other than being made to pay back the, uh, the, the money. Um, and she still works there as well. So it's obviously Wayne LaPierre, but th- that's two examples of some things that came out in court. I mean, there's quite a lot more. I mean, Wayne LaPierre didn't, uh, also didn't tell the board of directors, uh, before filing for bankruptcy. That was a major point in this case. Uh, he didn't <laughs> tell anyone really, <laughs> he didn't tell the board of directors. He didn't tell the, the, NRA's lawyer. He didn't tell the the uh, CTO. Uh, there was maybe uh, the he just CFO, forgot. The chief financial. <laughs> yeah. Well, he said in court he was worried about him. leaks. Yeah. I this mean. was actually one of the one of the big reasons why they got dismissed. Uh, which is kind of odd because like the board, the board is not uh, does not have any. Dis- there's no distance between the board and Wayne Lapierre on any of this stuff, right? Uh, outside of these four board members who, uh, you know, uh, tried to take control of the organization through the bankruptcy court. Uh, the board, despite not being told ahead of time about the group going into bankruptcy, came back several weeks later and voted to approve the bankruptcy anyway and authorized them to go into bankruptcy again if this bankruptcy didn't fail, or didn't work. So, uh, of course, the there's a lot of problems with the NRA board. That only they had two emergency meetings on the bankruptcy, right? The group is in bankruptcy. Right, they had emergency meetings, and only sixty percent of the board actually showed up to those meetings. Forty um, percent just didn't even come. So, well, bottom line question for you: What's the, what are the long term implications for the NRA on this? I mean, you've talked about how powerful the NRA has been, how it's been effective in in pushing legislation, both at the federal and the state level, um, and serves as this clearinghouse for five million NRA members. If I were an NRA member. I'd be pretty peeved about this. I'm paying these membership dues and I'm reading about, you know, Wayne LaPierre's annual Caribbean yacht trips. Um, yes, and, and that's all another real stuff. thing. I mean, I would be pretty angry and I would think that this might take that, that stagnating membership level, you know, at 4.8 million and, and lead to further uh, reductions. Is that, is that happening when you talk to NRA members uh, around the country? Are they frustrated by this or not really? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that members that I hear from uh, are all universally opposed to Wayne LaPierre and to say that they will not give any money uh, to the NRA as long as he remains uh, in his position. And that's basically the only thing I ever hear about <laughs> the NRA from NRA uh from gun rights activists um, and former members, or even life members, you know, current life members, and uh, I do think that that probably does have a significant impact on their um, membership uh, rates. However, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, the NRA is is a you know uh, the the main opposition, or at least publicly, especially in media, is the main opposition to what Joe Biden wants to do on gun control. And so that's that's how they're presented. That's still they still have that position legitimately as the biggest uh, gun group in the country. And so they will benefit certainly from just the effect of uh, being the default place to go if you don't like what Joe Biden is trying to do on guns, which a lot of people don't. Uh, In fact, it's one of his worst uh, performing issues uh, for the president, so uh, I, I don't think that they're going to like suddenly drop to you know three million members, or they're not going to lose millions and millions of members uh, over this. Or they they really already would have, I would imagine, at this point, um, if that was going to happen. So uh, 
I think long term, the most likely outcome for the NRA is that they'll carry on the way they are now for another couple of years while they fight this New York case. And then they will probably lose that case. Um, you know, you know, you never know what could happen, obviously, in, in legal cases. But to me, you know, if you're trying to file bankruptcy to avoid uh, a, a legal prosecution in a, case, in, a, in a state, you probably don't have a good expectation that you're going to win there. So um, they'll probably lose. I don't think that they'll be dissolved just because it's such a high bar and it's so politically charged to do that. Um, like legitimately, it would be concerning on a fundamental level if Letitia James, who is openly politically opposed to the NRA, uh, fiercely so, was able to shut them down completely, um, even if their leadership uh, did do all the things she claims they did, right? Uh, and some of which they've already admitted to doing. But um, I, I think instead you'll probably see the leadership be removed um, and and you'll see uh, fines imposed and maybe some sort of you know restructuring plan put in place. Uh, of course, the NRA could go back to bankruptcy court again. Um, it's it sort of, they might have, it might come down to uh, deciding between Wayne LaPierre and the future of the organization for, for the board members. Um, because the problem with going back to bankruptcy court is the judge effectively said that if they did, he's likely to appoint a trustee, which would, which would displace LaPierre and the other leadership. So um, they could do that once they get closer to like a verdict that threatens their assets, but uh, it would probably come with a, a high price as far as their leadership goes. So the talking point from the left for 20 years, I guess, has been that uh, Republican candidates are bought and paid for by the NRA. And so as we talk about how the NRA is, um, if nothing else, distracted at the moment, I'm curious what the political effect of that is. And some of what I hear from you is that actually it it probably will have no effect on the Republican Party's stance on gun control, on gun owners' support for the Republican Party. So I guess then the real question is, did the NRA ever matter? Yeah, right. That's, that's a good question, I think, because I, I, I think it's true that there's a reason, you know, the NRA has had all these struggles over the last several years, but we haven't seen a huge increase in gun control laws. There's been no new gun control passed at the federal level. And so the, if this idea that uh, the only thing stopping, uh, you know, gun control laws from being passed in America is that the NRA buys literally, uh, you know, senators and, and congressmen, if that were true, and you hear that a lot from people on the left, then we would have a lot of new gun control right now because the NRA's finances are not in good standing. Like they spent uh, I think about half in uh, in 2020, they spent about half of what they did in 2016 on uh, the presidential election. So that uh, they're, they're, they don't have the same kind of spending power. But the thing about it is like that was never what made them powerful to begin with anyway. It's not insignificant. It's not nothing. But uh, they aren't, you know, anywhere near the top spenders in federal elections. Uh, and instead, it's it really is that membership and the ability to get those members out to uh, perform activism, uh, and then also to vote, you know, ultimately. And, uh, but the, you know, the thing about that is, yes, they're huge in terms of a political organization because they have 5 million members. Uh, but there's like 120 million Americans who report having a gun in their home. So clearly they don't, they haven't captured the best swath of, uh, uh, gun owners in America. There's, many more people who are not NRA members who care about their gun rights and uh, even vote based off of them. And, and that's what really makes gun owners in America a powerful constituency. Uh, it's not th the NRA-specific brand or the NRA-specific money. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they're meaningless. I think that if it went away tomorrow, it would be difficult time for the gun rights movement for several years before the kind of infrastructure that the NRA provides could be reestablished. Like there's no other group out there that does, that has like a national state level, um, lobbying arm. Like the, the, they're oftentimes 
the ones who who help uh, push bills through in st- state houses. They might not be the biggest state, biggest group in the state on you know the the state level. There's a lot of state based groups, but they they are a very significant one everywhere uh, throughout the country. And um, and then on the Hill, they're really the most effective uh, gun rights lobbying organization by far. It really is like, um, you know, the, the gun industry has, uh, the national shooting sports foundation, which does lobbying on the Hill. Um, and, and, uh, they're significant, uh, you have gun owners of America does some lobbying, but, uh, I'll give you an example of, of, you know, if you compare gun owners of America to the NRA, right. Gun owners of America has started doing a lot more, uh, legal work. That's, uh, They've had some legitimate wins there in recent years, but uh, there was a bill called Fix Nicks back in 2017, right? That that increased funding for uh, the FBI background check system to get more records in there because uh, Silent Springs church shooting, that guy was prohibited, but his records were never shared with the background check system, so he was able to pass a background check and buy a gun. So they Congress fixed this or tried to fix it by you know passing this bill, and GOA opposed the bill. Um, while the NRA and NSSF and others supported it. And the bill passed overwhelmingly uh, on a bipartisan basis with about a dozen House GOP members voting against it. So that gives you some sort of indication, I think, on the relative power of the two organizations on, on the Hill. Like, there's not that many people who would listen to GOA over the NRA at this point in Congress. And there just isn't anyone else set up to replicate what the NRA does. So it's kind of, I guess, uh, maybe a long way of saying it's kind of a, a mixed bag. Like they're not the be all and end all, but they're also not nothing. So speaking of the Hill, you have uh, an ATF nominee who favors restrictions on AR 15s. Uh, so at the federal level, the Biden administration pursuing various gun control measures. At the state level, you have Texas about to allow what's called constitutional carry, meaning someone can carry a handgun without a license, background check, training, et cetera. Um, (laughs) Where is gun control going in the next year or two in your mind? Anywhere? Nowhere? (laughs) Uh, Great question. Uh, I think on the Hill in in Congress, it's going nowhere. Um, Shipman's nomination is probably going to be the if he gets through, which it's not clear he will, um, I mean, they, li- Biden is literally trying to put an actual gun rights, gun control activist. He literally works for Giffords, uh, the gun control group right now, and has worked for a bunch of other gun control groups over the last 10 years. He's trying to make him the head of the agency that regulates the firearms industry, um, which is a pretty bold step, I, I guess you could say. Um, and his, his positions are pretty far out of line with what most moderate senators actually support. None of, basically none of them, you know, Tester, Manchin, Cinema, uh, Toomey. On the Democratic side. Well, on, on either side, uh, Toomey, Collins, Murkowski, who are people who might vote for Biden, uh, you know, nominees, um, and, you know, cause a lot of Republicans will just vote no on most Biden nominees with the sort of become the thing for each party at this point. But, um, th- they're all pretty far, like none of them support an assault against ban and none of them, certainly none of them support trying to force every current owner to register their guns with the, the, uh, ATF. But so it, it's a big risk putting him up there, but he, he could, he could, he has a real chance of being confirmed, I would say at this point. Um, and that would probably be the biggest thing to make it through, uh, Congress on, uh, gun control at this point. The, the, I don't think there's going to be any sort of compromise background check bill that actually gets to 60 votes. Um, they're not even going to try to pass an assault weapons ban through the house, let alone the Senate. Um, at this point, uh, they didn't even try that last year when they had a bigger majority. Uh, so I don't think you're going to see much on the federal level outside the Supreme Court. You could see movement there um, for sure on on their gun carry case. Uh, but then at the state level, uh, I mean, 
I think you're probably more likely to see more gun rights bills than gun control bills um, at this point. Like permitless carry is the most popular uh, gun policy of the last decade. Uh, In 2010, there were two states that had permitless carry. And then now, today, in 2021, there are uh, 21 states that have permitless carry. And Texas is the biggest state to adopt it, and which will probably lead to more states uh, doing so. Now, these are all you know, red states, of course. Um, and you might see a few more states pass uh, red flag laws, but I think you're kind of tapped out on the states that are willing to do that based on the, the makeup of uh, state legislatures at this point, because those, those have really only passed in, in blue states. Um, so you're sort of, and there is obviously the same sort of limit with permitless carry. At some point, you run out of states that are willing to consider this because Guns generally and all gun policies, frankly, have become so polarized and the the d- debate over them has become so stagnated that you really aren't going to see permitless carry pass in, uh, you know, New York or Maryland or even Virginia. Uh, and you're not going to see a red flag law pass in, uh, you know, Oklahoma or or, or uh, you know, Alabama or, or wherever else. So. Uh, we might be reaching a point where there isn't a lot more of the trendy gun laws. Uh, there's not a lot more space for them to pass in the remaining states that don't already have them. So, if if we're thinking about the polarization that you just mentioned, um, you know, we talked earlier about how you've had you know sub- suburban folks uh, buying guns, maybe pushing them closer to the Republican side of the polarization issue. And you've, I think, seen others who might have been at least sympathetic to Second Amendment issues or freedom uh, arguments in terms of gun ownership pushed the other way with the numbers of mass shootings we've seen. Um, There was a shooting in San Jose two days ago uh, that's gotten a lot of coverage. Has there been an increase in the number of mass shootings over the past five years, or has it just gotten more attention from the media um, given what we've seen? It's a good question. Uh, It's a good question that I want (laughs) to, there's so much I want to say on two points there. The first one is uh, just directly on your question about mass shootings. There have been an increase in mass shootings, um, uh, even by the, what I would consider the proper definition of them which is uh, like what Mother Jones uses in their, in their database, um, which is essentially th- three or more people killed at one time in a public random shooting. Um, because the big issue we've had with, with mass shootings in the media lately, is, uh, there's a couple, but the big one uh, to me is that they basically, a few years ago, just changed what mass shooting means. Um, it used to, you know, there's really, there's no official definition of it from the you know FBI or anything like that. There is a definition of mass murder, uh, which is where the mass shooting term originated from, which is three or more killed at, at one, in one uh, event. And um, that's what was used for a long time. But then uh, back in, I believe it's 2015, some gun rights activists decided that that was not a good enough definition and they changed it to three or more shot which, as you might imagine, wildly increases the number of incidents that are called mass shootings. It really does by like tenfold. That's when you started to hear like, oh, there's more mass shootings than, you know, you get a mass shooting per day or there's more than one mass shooting per day in America. That's because they changed how they counted them. And so that's what mostly the media uses now, even though I think it's extremely misleading because the vast majority of those incidents aren't anything like you know, you're a Parkland or a Las Vegas or even a, the San Jose shooting, right? Um, and and you also, the, I would also argue that the most media outlets don't really buy that definition because they still only do wall-to-wall coverage of the old style, you know, the the three or more killed at a time uh, events. They don't cover every, they don't cover most shootings in America. That that's That's another point I wanted to make too is like, the media is only concerned about mass shootings, which is which wildly distorts actual gun violence in America. Because if you and this last year has been on, uh, you know, 
a fantastic example of this or a perfect example of it because we had essentially no public mass shootings during the lockdown period, during the pandemic, um, from about March through uh, January of this year. We essentially did not have any of these major mass shootings uh, until the one in Atlanta after things had started to open back up again. Um, and, you know, obviously it's not a good solution to the problem because it came because there were no crowds and no one was allowed, you know, to gather close together. But it did show to some degree the issue with media coverage of mass shootings because since there were no mass shootings, there really wasn't much coverage of gun violence at all in media. Now, obviously, there were certainly other things going on that were very important to cover at the same time. But I think most people don't realize that 2020, there was a huge spike in murders uh, in the United States. Gun murder was up significantly over the previous five years. Um, now, and that's continued into 2021, but you don't see coverage of your everyday, like, crime, you know, regular gang murders or domestic violence murders. Uh, they don't get the kind of coverage that mass shootings get. That, that's just the reality of how it works. And I, I think then trying to take those, those kinds of shootings, which make up most of uh, gun murders in, in the United States, mass shootings are responsible for a very small number of actual murders in the United States as shocking and horrific as they are and hard to understand. Uh, and, you know, you can see why people obviously are interested in them because of all the factors that go on. Pe- can't, people can't relate to why someone would want to do that, obviously, as much as they could understand the motivations between behind, you know, a, a, a gang murder or something. Um, and so you, I can understand the interest, but it paints a very misleading picture when you try and conflate all the San Jose's and Las Las Vegas and Parkland shootings with, um, you know, uh, regular, you know, a gang murder in Chicago or, uh, or anywhere else. And these crimes have different motivations and different solutions. And so there's really not much value in lumping them together the way that the media does now, other than trying to imply to people that something like Las Vegas happens three times a day in the United States. And it doesn't. Um, so, and then on the, the other point that I had about it, uh, what you said is, um, this sort of, uh, are we just stuck in like a polarized nature of, of guns in America forever? Is there going to be something that can move, uh, away from the stagnation we've seen on the issue over the last 30 years? And I do think that there is, um, uh, and this was part of what I wrote about for the dispatch, right? Is there this new breed of gun owner that's come up, um, and, and this new, uh, uh, demographic of gun, gun ownership in America, uh, all the, uh, people who aren't necessarily traditionally, uh, associated with being conservative Republicans, a lot more of those people are buying guns now, right? A lot more minorities, younger people, people from more urban and suburban areas. And I think that is what could change the gun debate over time uh, more than anything else. Um, because as those people become, uh, you know, gun owners, there are, you already see in polling that people who are gun owners are less likely to support gun control measures across the board. Right. Uh, not that, not that they, they necessarily become immediately opposed to everything or the, the numbers go back in the favor of what, you know, the NRA might want or whatever, but, they're less likely to support it. So you already have that change uh, by the nature of owning a gun in and of itself. And then some percentage of people who own guns become gun rights activists or become gun voters as well, right? And then some percentage of those people become activists and how big those percentages are will have a a long-term effect on the gun debate. And I think uh, it's going to take several years for that transition to happen for a lot of these people. You've seen it with some people like Scott Kane from Asian American Pacific Islander gun owners and uh, John Keyes from uh, Guns Out TV, uh, who I wrote about for the dispatch. But I think it'll be a while for the rest of them to develop. And I don't necessarily think that they're going to just become, uh, you know, party line Republicans, right? I don't think that's the natural transition. Some of them will. Uh, some of them might already be there. Um, or were before they bought a gun. But I think what will be more interesting to watch is how these 
types of new owners from different demographics affect the Democratic Party on this issue? Like, will they, in the long term, force Democrats back to uh, closer to the center on guns? Um, because I think there's probably a, a a decent path for a lot of Democratic candidates to appeal to people who have been put put off by you know Donald Trump and uh, and the Republican Party, uh, uh, but who also value gun rights and are put off by Democrats' positions on those things uh, on that issue. And so, um, I, I think if those people do develop uh, into gun gun rights activists, they might not give up their opposition to the Republican Party, but um, they might force Democratic Party into offering more candidates that they can support um, if they want to, you know, win elections. So um, that's really where I see the potential for long-term change in, in the American gun debate. All right. Last question. What movie actor would you say most annoys you on screen in terms of the way they hold or fire a gun? <laughs> uh, most of them, right? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard when you know, like, about I, this is probably true for a lot of things, right? If you know a lot about a subject and then you watch uh, a movie that deals with it, um, uh, it can get very annoying because just so much, especially with guns in, in like Hollywood, uh, there's just so much stupidity that goes on all the time. I mean, at least 50% are firing with one hand while trying to aim that feels weird. Yeah. A lot of them will, I I will say that I think John wick has kind of, uh, gotten a lot of the action movies to start like trying to, emulate like competitive shooters or military shooters. And so at least they look uh, oftentimes in the way they hold the guns, uh, like they're doing like they're competent. But the, the problem for me more comes with like how bullets work in a lot of these universes (laughs) where it's just like, what what do you do? Like, none of this makes any sense. Like you're just, uh, you know, getting shot 15 times and being fine. Or like uh, if you stand behind a wooden, door you know you can't be hurt by bullets being shot through like it's just a lot of nonsense that goes on and then especially for me because because you know my background writing about uh gun law and politics like a lot of the uh anytime they talk about anything uh with gun laws it's almost always wrong like and it can take you out of it because uh, i'll give you an example mayor mayor of east town um which is great, right? It's about my my no spoilers <laughs> where I'm from. Uh, it's about where I'm from in Pennsylvania, Delaware County. Um, and uh, but there's a scene in there, uh, and you know it's this well done like gritty dr- crime drama uh, that follows a detective trying to solve you know kidnappings and murders and so forth. And uh, there's one scene where they talk about how, how they like looked into how the gun that they recovered from the, from one of the suspects was the, he was the only one who had a registered gun in the, in the house. And it was like, and it takes place in Pennsylvania, which doesn't have a gun registry. <laughs> so it's, it's like, uh, no, stop. Uh, or uh, I remember Mr. Uh, Mr. Robot. If you remember that show from FX, the, the like sci-fi hacker show. I remember one point in that show, like the FBI agent or NYPD agent was like, Oh, uh, we we used micro stamping to to like match the shell casings from the scene to your gun, and I was like, I mean, they've done enough research to know what micro stamping is, uh, which is required, which is something that's required in California on uh, so that new guns have the tech, have you know, have that have this technology incorporated. But they, I guess, they didn't go far enough to know that this isn't a real technology; it doesn't exist. It's theoretical. Like nobody makes guns with Microsoft. That's part of the problem with California's laws. Like they mandated this theoretical technology be in guns that nobody produces. And so it's like that happens a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, and it really can take you out of it. It's just like, oh, okay, whatever. Or uh, I watched like, sometimes it's on purpose, right? Like uh, Zack Snyder's new zombie heist movie. But it just gets so stupid, like watching just 
everyone's bulletproof all the time. And it's like, what, like there's a zombie with a bulletproof helmet and he just gets shot a thousand times in this. It's just like a thin piece of metal. And it's just so annoying to me because it's like, that's not how bullets work at all. So dispatch listeners, the takeaway from this is you don't watch movies with Steve Hayes because he's never seen a movie and that will just confuse him. <laughs> and you don't watch movies with Steven Gutowski because he will ruin them for you and you will not enjoy the movie. <laughs> That's my takeaway. Steven, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to read all about what Steven's thoughts are, his reporting, everything else, go to thereload.com, subscribe. It's great stuff if you really want to know what's going on in this world. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. 